This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe, and thanks for joining us for a very special episode indeed, because this week we're celebrating a breakthrough discovery at one of English Heritage's most iconic sites, which has made headlines both here and around the world. New research that's been published tonight has revealed the origin of Stonehenge's giant upright stones. The story of the 20 to 30 tonne megaliths will have to be rewritten. Until now, it was thought the Sarsons of Stonehenge could have come from anywhere between Devon and Norfolk. A piece removed from one of the stones six decades ago could bring some answers. It's been a question that has eluded the experts for hundreds of years and has puzzled all who visit. Where did the largest stones at Stonehenge, the Sarsen stones, come from? Well, groundbreaking research has finally identified the very spot where they were extracted. So, I recently travelled to this particular location, far away from the World Heritage Site, to find out how and why these giant stones were transported over miles of countryside to create this prehistoric landmark. I'm meeting Susan Greeney, a senior properties historian with English Heritage, to get a sense of the journey the Stones and Stonehenge's builders would have taken. So Susan, you've brought me to a large wooded area. We're surrounded by a handful of sarsen stones. Where are we exactly though? We are in Westwoods, which is a huge area of Forestry Commission woodland just southwest of Marlborough in Wiltshire. And we're actually standing in a valley called Hursley Bottom, which is a shallow valley which runs through part of the woods. And scattered around us here are some of the sarsen stones that are here naturally, kind of covered in moss and with trees growing out of them and looking like they've been here forever. But these are the sarsen stones that we think are the same type that we use to build Stonehenge. And it's thanks to some groundbreaking research, I understand, by Professor David Nash at the University of Brighton that we know that the Sarsons came from this spot where we're standing. How did he make his discovery? David had been an expert in Sarsen and he was developing a methodology for looking at how you look at the chemical composition of Sarsen to work out where objects has come from. And he was developing this in Africa. At the same time, back here in the UK, Professor Tim Darvel was looking at his pieces of Sarsen that he'd excavated recently from Stonehenge. And they needed to analyse them. They wanted to analyse them. So they came up with a project to try and work out where the sarsen stones at Stonehenge had came from. Now, most people know that they're probably from the Marlborough Downs. And that's where we are now. We're on part of the Marlborough Downs. But there'd never been any definite proof or scientific evidence that this was definitely the case. And others had speculated that they might have come from closer to Stonehenge or from some random sinkhole somewhere. Who knows? Sarsen outcrops all across southern England. So what David did was sample about 20 different naturally occurring sarsen sites, including Westwoods here in Wiltshire, and try and match that chemical composition to the sarsen stones at Stonehenge. And they were successful? They were. So um, out of the 20 sites, the one from here in Westwoods was the closest match to the sarsen stones at Stonehenge. And what they matched it with was a core, a piece of Stonehenge that had been removed in 1958 that had been returned to us at English Heritage a couple of years ago. So we think this is probably where the majority of the sarsens at Stonehenge come from. So potentially where we're standing right now with these lumps of sarsens sticking out of the ground with all the leaves surrounding them and all the moss and 
fallen foliage on top of them, that potentially these could have been the ones that didn't make it, that, that were re- rejected for some reason. That's right. I mean, the, the sarsen stones here are a range of sizes and shapes, and they were deliberately selecting really large ones and really rectangular ones. They then worked and shaped those into the shapes that we can see today. But obviously, a lot of them were smaller, perhaps they weren't suitable, perhaps they were too difficult to get out of the ground. So that's what's left here. In fact, these woods were used in the 19th century and early 20th century for sarsen extraction. The stone was broken up and used in road building. So a lot more of the sarsen was probably removed at that date as well. That's fascinating. So how long has it taken to solve this mystery? The core was taken in 1958. It's only really recently that the science has developed enough. David Nash's techniques have had the technology really to try and answer this question. William Lambard, who was an antiquarian who wrote about Stonehenge in the 16th century, speculated that the stones might come from the Marlborough Downs. So we've kind of had that probably for best part of 400 years but it's not until now that we've got the science to show that it does and thanks to his hunch we've finally been able to get the proof yeah that's right the marble downs are quite large there's a lot of sarsen if anyone's ever been traveling around the avebury area you'll have seen natural sarsen scatters in places like lockridge and fifield down but six of the places on the marble downs were sampled and it was the westwards ones which were the only match you say that the sarsen stones are generally scattered around these woods One thing I noticed, obviously, while driving to meet you here is that they're also scattered in people's gardens. There's a nice pretty thatched cottage with them in the front garden and there's also a children's play area where they're sort of lying on the ground as well. So the sarsens are um, a really useful building stone. So a lot of the cottages, houses, pubs all around here in the villages like Lockridge and Fifield are built out of sarsen. It's the main local building stone. Natural sarsen scatters have obviously been broken up and used for building, but also to clear layers of land for growing crops for agriculture. I mean, in later times, people have used them to build stone walls, rockeries and gardens. It's just everywhere around here. So it's a very, very common and local stone. Do we have any idea why Stonehenge's builders chose the stone from this particular location? And do the stones have any particular qualities that can't be found elsewhere? There's nothing different about this particular sarsen stone to any of the other sarsen stones across the Marlborough Downs. But here in Westwoods, they are particularly large. So we know that there are really large examples. And they were obviously trying to find the largest stones that they could. It seems like they had a design in mind for Stonehenge and how they wanted it to look. And so I think personally that they're deliberately selecting them from this Westwoods area because of the huge scale of them here. And also because it is a relatively close part of the Marlborough Downs to Stonehenge itself. We're about 50 miles north of Stonehenge here and so it, as the crow flies it's a, it's a closer location than some other areas of sarsen. Looking at this very long piece of sarsen which is resting in the uh, ground here with all the moss and leaves and fallen twigs all over it how do you think it was actually something like this was extracted? We can see actually some of the sarsens in this, these woods. People have tried to extract them, but then left them in place. Not in prehistory, probably more likely in the 19th and early 20th century. And what you have to do is once you find a large slab, it might just be a, a small amount of it sticking out of the ground, is dig a trench all the way around it, expose the sides, and then you need to start to lever it out. The stones are sitting on the surface. You don't need to extract them from any bedrock. There's no hard work involved in that respect, but certainly you've got to lever them out of the ground And what we hope is that in future research in these areas of the woods might identify extraction hollows from where stones have been taken from. And that we might be able to pinpoint a little bit more which areas of the woods might have been the the places that the Stonehenge stones were taken from. Going back 
thousands of years into prehistory, how many people might have been involved in this giant operation to move these massive slabs? We don't know for certain. We don't know if they moved one stone a year over a process of 50, 60 years or whether it was done all at once. And obviously that affects how many people you need. But you're going to have to have people here selecting the stones, digging them out, extracting them, levering them. Then you're going to have to have other people who are transporting the stones. It's about 15 miles, which is doesn't sound that far. A day's walk, maybe, if you're fit. But dragging one of these stones, it's going to take several days. And it's not flat either. There is a large valley, the Vale of Pusey, and then the Salisbury Plain to get over to get to Stonehenge. So each of one of those stones, perhaps 50 to 100 people dragging a stone. And then you've got the working and the dressing and the shaping of the stones that happens, we think, at the Stonehenge end, and then raising them into place. So lots and lots of people would have been involved, huge numbers. And you've mentioned the Vale of Pusey. We'll be going there shortly. But how many trips do you think they made, bearing in mind the number of stones involved, sarsen stones involved in Stonehenge? There are about 80 sarsen stones used at Stonehenge, so 80 trips each stone. And so I imagine that perhaps it was every couple of weeks and another stone was moved. We don't have any evidence of trackways or particular routes that the stones may have been transported over. If there was anything like that, it would be so ephemeral it'll be on the surface you know it wouldn't be something that as archaeologists you would ever rediscover so we can only kind of guess as to which are the most likely routes from here down to Stonehenge but we still don't know for certain exactly how many trips how long it took exactly how it was done. Durrington Walls was a settlement obviously and that was where we think the feasting for the celebrations for the solstices took place is there perhaps a chance that there was a settlement near here a builder's settlement? Quite possibly. There may well be Neolithic settlement in here, around here. We're only a couple of miles from Avebury itself. So if any listeners know Avebury, they know there's an enormous henge monument there and stone circles and as a huge number of other monuments in this area, including some that look like feasting settlement sites, one in particular known as West Kennet Palisaded Enclosures. So there may well have been people living here. I quite like to think of Darrington Wars as maybe being something where people were celebrating at the end of each stone moving. Those feasts may have been relating to the actual construction of Stonehenge rather than just the solstice. And perhaps people were celebrating with feasts at the end of bringing each stone to the place. We actually know of other ethnographic examples of historic societies in places like Indonesia, where feasting is a great big part of the stone moving kind of event. So maybe we can link the two together. That is a really interesting point, and I think that's something that we can perhaps ponder as we make our way to our next location. Right, so Susan, we've eventually ended up uh, near a gate, and uh, we're surrounded by fields and lots of undulating landscape. And we've also travelled probably three-ish miles from our previous location at Westwoods. And we travel along a road which is kind of in a valley. And it seems like a natural place to put a road. And therefore it might have been a natural place to have been a pathway for Neolithic travellers bringing sarsen stones from Westwoods. We've kind of come to the edge of the Marlborough Downs towards Stonehenge from Westwoods. And this is one of the possible routes over which the sarsen stones were bought. There are other routes, particularly um, if you had got your sarsen stones from the east side of Westwoods, this would be the most logical place to bring them. The west side may be one of the other valleys that also leads down to the edge of the Marlborough Downs. 
And we're here actually surrounded by early Neolithic archaeology. This is a really important place if you're a bit of a, a Neolithic buff like I am. Up above us to our right is Knapp Hill, which is an early Neolithic causewayed enclosure. So an, an area surrounded by a bank and ditch that was probably a place of gathering, of settlement, of exchange, of feasting, of all kinds of community activities in the early Neolithic period. So much earlier than Stonehenge was built, about a thousand years earlier. And we can also see up above us on the other side of the valley, Adam's Grave, which is a really enormous long barrow. So a burial monument also dates from the early Neolithic. So we can surmise that this area is really important in the Neolithic period already. And this valley and this routeway, as you've said, coming down from Westwoods is a natural valley and an obvious way to bring the stones and then slide them off the edge of the Marlborough Downs here to the flat Vale of Pusey below. How different do you think this terrain might have looked in prehistoric times? I mean, would it have been as open as we see today with all these ploughed fields or would it have been more wooded? So around us now is mostly pasture and that's probably how it looked in the Neolithic period too. We know that quite a lot of these monuments were built in grazed grassland. Down in the valley we can see there's a lot more trees now. There's a lot of woodland and hedge boundaries and that kind of thing and it's probably again something similar in prehistory and the the river valleys would have been more wooded than up here on the chalk downland. But yeah we do think that these areas are probably quite open. They're being used for grazing. Uh, People are moving over these areas quite regularly. Experiments that we've actually done at Stonehenge with our visitors show that moving a sarsen stone over grassland like this is not that difficult you know as long as you've got a lot of people and they're all pulling at the same time this would be relatively easy to drag the stones over. What kind of obstacles do you think they would have faced thousands of years ago? Depends on what time of year they were dragging the stones particularly if it was in the wetter months you might have found that the valley itself down below us was quite boggy there's a river to cross down there that might have been quite difficult if there's sticky muddy patches to keep the stone moving up here on the downland where it's a lot drier and the chalk itself is relatively hard that's going to be much more easier and then of course the route between here and Stonehenge isn't flat so we're coming off down the edge of the Marlborough Downs would be relatively easy you've got gravity on your side but on the other side we're looking across to the edge of Salisbury Plain which is on the horizon here and that's a steep up so you've got to drag your stone up a relatively steep slope to get onto Salisbury Plain to take your stone all the way to Stonehenge so that would have been a difficult patch as well. When they got to that difficult patch with that slope facing them what sort of weight of stone are we talking about that's suddenly becoming feeling a bit more heavy? The stones are um, an average of about 20 tonnes. Some of the really, really large ones are up to 30 tonnes. Some of the lintels are a bit smaller, so around about 10 tonnes. But yeah, substantial weights, not something that you want to be struggling with. You can imagine that strains, injuries, even death may have been a part of the operation. But I guess they knew what they were doing. They had 80 of these stones to move. So once they've done a few, they probably knew which patches to avoid and how difficult it was going to be. Weight-wise, what would be a a modern equivalent? Are we talking about a couple of cars' weight, that sort of thing? Yeah, a a car is about five tonnes, I think. Small kind of hatchback-type car. So it's a bit like, yeah, trying to drag a small van or or a small lorry, really. I I can see it in my head now, and I can imagine the number (laughs) of people involved in doing it. So the next key question is then, When we think of cars and the fact that they've got wheels, 
would they have had some sort of rolling mechanism that was used to make the transport along there? We don't think that they had wheels, although actually the earliest wheels from England are not that much later. They're in the early Bronze Age. But the earliest wheels are very flimsy wooden affairs. They're not going to take massive amounts of weight. They're things that you would have on small carts and things. So using wheels is probably very unlikely for this, the weight of these stones. It's quite possible that they used rollers. It's quite possible that they constructed some kind of trackway, sort of like almost like rails, like a, like a railway, particularly if there were boggy patches or difficult stretches. But of course, all of those things don't leave any evidence behind. The timber rots away, and if anything was constructed on the surface, it would be very easily ploughed away and lost. So we don't really know exactly how it was done. And actually, surprisingly, the experiments we've done at Stonehenge with a wooden sledge, so the stone is strapped onto a wooden sledge, relatively easy over, over grassland like this to drag quite quickly and quite easily. So they may not have needed a mechanism or a device at every stage. And the likely route, as we're looking into the veil here? So there's two possibilities. One is that you bring your stone down here where we're looking now, down off this edge of the Marlborough Downs, and basically head almost due south down to the river valley of, of the top of the River Avon, which is the river that flows close to Stonehenge, and then bringing your stone down a river valley. Now you might think, well, a valley sounds quite easy. It's going to be relatively flat, but actually the river wouldn't have been big enough to float the stones. It's a relatively small stream at the top here. So you're basically trying to drag your stone along a river valley that might be quite difficult, might be quite treed, quite a lot of woodland. So the other option is that you might bring your stone down into the Marlborough Downs and then head slightly back into the Vale of Pusey and across and up onto Salisbury Plain. Now that has the rise, the elevation bit, but at least once you're on Salisbury Plain, you're there, you know, you've got quite flat and open areas to drag your stone over to get to Stonehenge. Maybe they use both routes for different bits of the stones. We don't know. We'll have to debate it, I think probably on the way back <laughs> separately in our cars obviously okay well you've mentioned Salisbury Plain and that is our next location so we'll meet again at Stonehenge at Stonehenge so Susan we've arrived back at Stonehenge to see the ancient monument and we've traveled a long distance as well how many miles have we gone? As the crow flies, it's 15 miles. It feels a lot longer than that when you're driving, just because it's all very small roads and pretty villages. But it's probably the um, best part of 20 miles once the time you've gone around all the roads. And the weather changes as we move from place to place as well. It was sunny where we were in the Vale of Pusey looking down. Yeah, we've got some interesting dramatic showers today. Actually, the monument is um, framed very beautifully around a sort of slightly hazy blue sky underneath. And then above that, we've got this slightly ominous cloud. It does look quite beautiful, but in a slightly threatening sort of way. What is our vantage point exactly? Whereabouts are we standing? We're actually stood right at the entrance to Stonehenge. So this is where the avenue, which is the kind of processional approach, leads to the causeway across the outer henge, the earthwork henge. And we're looking what is, at what is really the best side of Stonehenge. It's the, the northeast facade. And it's the most complete and best preserved part of the monument today. And it seems to have also been the most sort of regularly built and carefully worked and shaped side of Stonehenge. So it's its, it's its best side. And right near the heel stone as well. Yep, nearest is the heel stone, which is the really, really enormous, large standing stone outside the stone circle. This is the biggest stone on the site, it's about 36 tonnes. And interestingly, the research on the Sarsons has shown that the heel stone also seems to match the Westwood's signature. So we think that the, this heel stone was also moved from that area. That's something that I didn't appreciate before. And it's bigger than the ones that are just in the distance in front of us. 
Yeah, it's about 36 tonnes, we think, whereas the others are kind of up to about 30. It, it's actually quite a kind of odd-shaped stone, very dramatic-looking and misshapen. It actually, we think it may have some dressing on it, but it's not dressed and made rectangular in such a way as the other ones. And it's slightly pointing out diagonally, unlike these which are standing upright. So any idea how the heelstone and then the sarsens were, were stood up? Well, the heelstone might just be leaning. It might well have stood a bit more vertical in the Neolithic period. But certainly it, it marks an important aspect, which is the view towards the summer solstice. So in the summer, the sun rises over the heelstone. Regarding the sarsens, which make up the outside circle, how would they have been stood up themselves? So the sarsens are the large stones at Stonehenge. When you look at any pictures of Stonehenge, they're the main ones that you see with the horizontal lintels and the upright verticals. In between are the much smaller blue stones, which are the ones that come from southwest Wales. In terms of how they were actually constructed, we think that the stone holes were dug with antler picks and one side of the stone hole was dug with a sloping side so that the stone could be moved in and then basically using probably weights and perhaps an A-frame to, to pull the ropes, levered into, into the hole. And we think on the, on the vertical side, on a few instances, excavations have shown that there are kind of timber upright stakes so to stop the stone going all the way over back the other way and that's how they were erected and then the lintels were probably put on top using scaffolding so levering up the stones using timber scaffolding. And the lintels is what we might refer to or as school children might refer to as kind of like the goal post, the, 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 <laughs> the sort of crossbar bit. Yeah the horizontal stones on the top of the lintels yeah. And then obviously the lintels were put on top to create what we call a trilithon. Yeah that's right. And when we talk about the positioning of the sarsens when do we think this happens during Stonehenge's development? The sarsens were brought to the site and put up in the sarsen circle, which is the outer circle, and the inner horseshoe, which is the horseshoe of five trilithons, in around about 2500 BC. This is a stage kind of in the middle, I guess, of Stonehenge's development. The earliest part of Stonehenge, which is the outer earthwork bank and ditch, was dug out about 500 years earlier. So the stones are a new arrival into an already existing monument. And they're set up with the blue stones rearranged amongst them. Now, um, the blue stones seem to have been put in several different positions in Stonehenge at different phases, but the sarsens seem to have just gone up and stayed in exactly the same places all the way through. Yes, because we've seen the, the, the blue stones before and they're on the inner ring, aren't they? That's right, yeah, they're in an inner horseshoe and an inner circle. And about seven foot tall, something like that, aren't they? Yeah, the tallest ones are that tall. There's a lot more of them are, are much more smaller and sort of natural boulder shaped, yeah. These sarsens are more like 23 feet, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the tallest one, which is the tallest trilithon, unfortunately it's only the one of a two stones that would have been the tallest ones on site, is just over seven metres tall. Some of them have fallen down as well. Yeah, we've got roughly around 80 sarsens were brought to the site initially, but now there's about 52 of them remaining on site. So we've lost entirely quite a number of them, especially the lintels, because of course they're the smaller stones. And if anyone was looking for stones in the medieval period or a bit later to take away and use elsewhere, then they'd be the obvious ones to try and move first. Regarding the smaller blue stones, up to seven feet tall, you said that these came from South Wales. How do you think they were transported here? Well, the stone outcrops where they were brought from have been identified. There's been some really specific geological work. And quite recently, two of the bluestone quarries have been excavated. So we have fairly good information about exactly where they came from. The route is, is somewhat up for debate. Some people think that they were brought overland from there all the way across mid Wales. 
I like to think that they were perhaps brought at least part of the way by sea. So using small boats would have been a much more efficient way to transport them, I think, than across kind of mountainous and wooded Wales. But at the moment, we don't have any particular evidence either way. Some recent research has looked at the altar stone, which is the stone right in the middle of Stonehenge, which is a different type of geology again. It's not bluestone, it's not sarsen, it's actually a type of sandstone. And that's been identified as coming from somewhere in the mid East Wales, so sort of Brecon Beacons, Black Mountains area. So that's suggesting that maybe that those bluestones were brought overland and they picked that one up on the way. It doesn't, it's not really conclusive though, because they don't have to have brought all of the bluestones that way. I think we might get a bit more information over the next few years about exactly where the altar stone's from, so that might help us a bit. Regarding where the bluestones fit in in the story of Stonehenge versus the Sarsons, how would you sort of trace the history? So they were brought to the site earlier probably than the Sarsons. This is really tricky because not all archaeologists agree on this. In the initial phase of Stonehenge, there's something we call the Aubrey Holes, which are 56 holes just within the bank, which seem to have held upright posts of some kind. Whether these were timber posts or the bluestones themselves is unknown. Quite a lot of archaeologists now think that they did hold the bluestones initially. Then the bluestones were later moved into within the Sarsen Circle. Again, that process is a little bit tricky. It looks like they set them up first in a double bluestone arc along with the Sarsons, and then later on, about 200, 300 years later, the bluestones get rearranged for some reason. So it's tricky. To, there's quite a lot of different phases of building work involved. You mentioned, that obviously, the supposed history of the bluestones versus the Sarsons there. Is, is there a different geological makeup as well? Yeah, so the bluestones are volcanic stones. They are a, a variety of stones. Actually, bluestone is not a geological term. There's rhyolites, spotted dolerites, dolerites, volcanic tuffs. They're all volcanic stones. Sarsen is completely different. It's a type of sandstone, so it's a sedimentary rock, and it's almost 100% silica. So it's like sand. If you look at it close up, it just looks like really hard rock hard sand and that's what makes it difficult to pinpoint whereas the bluestones have got lots of inclusions in them they've got quartz in them all kinds of things that geologists can look at quite carefully and compare to the source um, locations sarsen is just basically a blank slate it's just sand so what the recent research has done is, is looked at trace elements so very very small amounts of the other elements that are in the stones so this is things like iron and measure those and that's how they've managed to compare them with the natural sources how have they weathered to some extent they've weathered. Sarsen is a very hard stone and when the, the people built Stonehenge they worked and shaped it so they took off the outer weathered surface in most places. Actually the more damage has been done to the stones by visitors than by the weather or by frost cracking and that kind of thing you'll see that they've got a lot of lichens growing on them. Some of them are quite unusual lichens I'm told but they're not necessarily damaging the stone. Actually it's more that kind of the 100 or 150 so years of kind of constant tourists has led to kind of the stones becoming almost quite some of the ones on the floor are like rounded boulders really and that's just because of the wear and tear of people. Well, they've also been brighter thousands of years ago after they'd been chipped away at and yeah. sort of polished. When they were first worked and shaped both the blue stones would have been a darker blue colour and the sarsens would have been a much brighter white grey colour so the contrast between the two types of stone would have been much more dramatic than today where they both tend to look a little bit grey. <laughs> and interesting that you mentioned the grey there we've got the clouds moving in and if anyone can hear they can probably tell that it's slightly raining on our um, waterproof jackets here at the moment and we're, here we are talking about weathering. We've obviously gone on a journey through this podcast across the landscape and across millennia and we've retraced this story of the Sarsons. How significant was this latest research? 
It was really important to be able to finally have scientific evidence for the origin of the sarsen stones. Before that, we'd always used the word probably, that they probably come from the Marlborough Downs. Now that we know, they definitely came from the Marlborough Downs. So that's really important. It's also great because we can start to do what we've done today, which is trace the route that the sarsens were brought over and think about what important sites are along the way, and what possible routes were taken. And again, think about the effort and the huge organisational skills of these people to kind of bring these stones all the way to Stonehenge. It was probably a, a real milestone in, in the research, I suppose, here in Stonehenge, but is there any other work that's going on research-wise? There's always research happening relating to Stonehenge. In fact, there's a paper out which is about some new analysis of the acoustics of Stonehenge, so thinking about sounds and what the sounds in Stonehenge would have looked like when the monument was first built. What is really exciting on the horizon is actually something less important, and it's not necessarily discovery, but the publication of all of the research that's happened at Durrington Walls in particular, but also at some of the other monuments in the landscape, all that took part as part of the Stonehenge Riverside project. So I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a copy of those monographs when they start coming out, hopefully towards the end of this year, to see what the results are that all the archaeologists have got. The location that we pinpointed earlier, is there any more precise research going on around to refine that location? Yes, yeah, so Katie Whitaker, who's one of the co-authors of the Sarsen paper, is doing her PhD on Sarsens. And she's been looking at LIDAR evidence and mapping quite closely some of the 19th century working Sarsen working within Westwoods. So what she hopes to be able to do is identify the signature of a prehistoric hollow or extraction place and potentially narrow down a little bit more or begin to identify what prehistoric working looks like in those woods. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we find out how Henry VIII turned on the Pope and English monasteries. Dermot McCulloch, brilliant Tudor historian, would argue that there was never a plan for wholesale dissolutions and they actually came around by accident. It's not an argument I would completely agree with, but it certainly got me thinking. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>